welcome to the Wisdom Rising podcast. I'm your host, Lama Sultrama Alione. And my goal with this podcast is really to open your own wisdom, to have your own wisdom rising, either through the meditations that I lead or introduce you to, or to the people that I interview that bring wisdom with them in their own voice, in their own traditions. So we look forward to raising our wisdom together on the Wisdom Rising podcast. And I'm so happy to share this with you. So I wanted to tell you about our precious, really precious guest, Bob Thurman, old friend of mine, and he's done so much for the Tibetan tradition. I believe we were the first two monastics ordained in the Tibetan tradition. He was before me some by some years. I was 1970, and he was sometime in the 60s. He was the first Western Tibetan monk, and I believe I was the first Western Tibetan. So we have that deep connection. And now, without further ado, I'd like to bring my dear friend Bob Thurman in. Hi. Yes, so nice to see you. Yeah, maybe begin by just telling everybody what you're doing now and what's happening in your world. Where are you? Where are you tuning in from? And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being with us. That's so nice. You know, uh, uh, I, I was uh, you, you made me think we were the first ordained people uh, from the West um, by the wonderful sweet Tibetans. And uh, that's right, you know. And I wish we'd had more times uh, even, you know, but never mind. I'm sure we've been on this path together for many lifetimes. If we only knew what they were, you know. I only had a few hints at different times. I was, uh, actually it was at Mount Kailash, and I noticed there were some previous forms of myself. Wow. And they were kind of kidding, kidding with each other, because they were aware of each other, which I had not been. And huh. they were joking around, and they were saying, we always wanted to go to Mount Kailash. And now we finally get there as this idiot from New York. <laughs> and that was, they were, it was so graphic. It was, I was just bowing to the mountain, you know, from the first place of seeing it. I wrote about it in my book, Circling the Sacred Mountain. I was bowing at, at uh, because when you first see it, there's a place, and the Tibetans, you know, when the road comes up out of a ravine that it's been going in for a long time, then in that part of Western Tibet, and then it comes up, and there's a flat spot where you can see the mountain if there's clear weather. And it was evening, and there was beautiful sunset plume of uh, clouds streaming from its, like a banner from its peak. And uh, so I was bowing, and they make little cairns there, the Tibetans, you know. And uh, as I came up from the first bow, suddenly these voices, these people who saw, I knew they were me, and they were chatting each other in Tibetan. And they were like, really, it was bittersweet for them. They were there now as me, but they were, of course, in a good humor. But they were saying, well, we should have come when in our lifetimes. We knew so much more about all this than him. And we never got there because of all the bandits and the roads or whatever it was, you know. And then I, I literally almost twisted my neck, turning around to look up, because it was like they were right above me. And then they disappeared. You know, they hit. I don't even know for sure who they are, really. But uh, I'm, I'm sure you had experiences like that. 
but uh, it's really nice. It's nice that we can help people in the in in these tough times with a little bit. You know, what is it that comes from Tibet? They're sort of very cheery people. You mm -hmm. know, there's something cheery about the Tibetans. Even that's what was so amazing to us, wasn't it? When we met them in the '60s, and I met them in '62. You in the late 60s. And uh, there are these people who have been through hell and high water of invasion and exile and frostbite and coming out to very poor countries to seek uh, asylum and so on. And yet they somehow kept a kind of cheerfulness about themselves. They were not in a kind of cosmic depression like life is impossible or things, you know what I mean? In general, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's something about the culture. And what is that thing about the culture, you know? Is it, I'm sort of thinking, you know, for example, they mentally kind of are in a mode like they don't go all the way toward the despair, you know? There's something cheery, cheer, cheeriness about life that doesn't make death seem so awful, you know? It is still awful. It does still awful, even to Tibet. People shouldn't think that because of belief in future life, people who believe in future lives are just so scared of being nothing. That's not all the case. If they were sure for nothing, that's also okay. <laughs> that's like anesthesia, you know. I mean, that's not. it would be better to have fun, but nothing is at least not painful. But there's too much dread, I think, in the West. So we... We are the we survived many many decades, and we were touched. I think I, I was. I don't know about you. But I I feel I was touched by people who didn't feel the dread of sort of the end of everything coming. You know, there was something they were going to carry on at whatever plane or whatever level they are, and uh, that was really essential. I I felt at the time. I I wanted to learn that language right away. I wanted to be with them. I just, that was all I wanted to do, you know. Yeah. I I noticed the same thing. I noticed that uh, when I went to Dharamsala in, mm -hmm. uh, in 1967, there's actually somebody who studied the Tibetans in trauma named Jack Sol. And what he discovered is that they don't show the same signs of trauma of other mm -hmm. cultures. Uh, who mm -hmm. have been through similar. So he studied why, and mm -hmm. it is their spiritual life and their practices of compassion. And, you know, even to the Chinese who tortured them or killed their families or whatever, that, that mm -hmm. they would still offer love and compassion to those beings. Mm -hmm. And that that actually created an extremely different kind of experience of trauma mm -hmm. than is uh, experienced in most cases with with the level of what those people went through. And mm -hmm. so I didn't, of course, know all that. You know, they hadn't done those studies at that time, but I was fascinated by how these people could be so happy. And then they tell you their stories, <laughs> kind of smiling while they tell you how they saw their whole family shot in front of them. And it just... It didn't make any sense to a 19-year-old from New Hampshire. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we were lucky to be there at that time also with those very fresh refugees and then the lamas, who many, uh, many of whom have died now. Yes. But those, those lamas trained in Tibet and mm -hmm. teachers of His Holiness and 
all those llamas that uh, I was able to meet then, Chuck mm -hmm. just died recently, over 100 years old. So, yeah, that that is uh, really amazing. I wonder if you could maybe tell uh, one story of your of your days as a monk. What was that like for you? I think I was a little bit of a pain-in-the-neck monk <laughs> because um, I was, you know, the Tibetans are kind of relaxed about it, right? Like they eat in the evening, cold climate, you know. They don't, you know, they don't do gong che, you know, they don't do only before noon, right, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they're kind of happy-go-lucky happy in a certain type of way. But once I became a monk, <laughs> Then I had to finish them by noon, or I wouldn't eat till the next day. You know? And I was like a stickler on everything about everything, and looking disapprovingly if they were being a little like, you know, hanging out, not meditating. And so I wanted everybody to sort of be practicing madly and so on. And they don't always do that, as you know. You know, they hang out, and as many do, but they don't always do that. And so I was kind of a bother, I think, actually. <laughs> and uh, but they were so they were kind to me anyway. And then I argued a lot, you know, because I was learning logic and looking, learning about emptiness and learning how. But and then my my teacher, my Mongolian teacher from who had been a who was a geishi from Gomang, but he also had a very huge experience in Asia life. Nowadays, I think I refer to him when people are wondering about him. I say he was my Mister Miyagi, you know, the guy in the Karate Kid with a little tiny beard. Mm -hmm. He was sort of like a character. He wasn't a highfalutin. Didn't play the role of a highfalutin lama, but he was actually very highfalutin, actually, psychically. But he didn't play that role. He uh, he refused to teach me the techniques and strategies of formal debate. You know, the one with clap your hand and do that. And I said, why not? Why won't you teach me? He said, oh, you make too many people unhappy. You can debate well enough just naturally, and you'll bother them. But I'm not going to teach you the, the formal method. And I was very miffed at the time. You know, he didn't also want to make me a monk. He refused, and then he took me to meet in '64, and he said, um, after being with him for about a year and a half, because I was bugging him all the time to be a monk. He said, "Well, maybe the Dalai Lama will make you a monk, you know. So you can go with me if you want. I have to go to India and do this and do that." So, uh, so I went. I got. I raised some money from my grandfather. I went, and then when he introduced me to Dalai Lama as a whatever, you know, good student wants to study, will you help him? And I was already speaking Tibetan, actually. But then he said, he wants to be a monk, Your Holiness, and he's sincere about it. It isn't anything fake. But he won't be able to be a monk in the future, is my view as an old Mongolian. <laughs> You're the Dalai Lama, you decide. But my advice is don't make him a monk. Just let him live like one, but don't make him a monk. Formally, he said to His Holiness, His Holiness took it under advisement. <laughs> but he did anyway. He made me a monk. Anyway, and then uh, the old Geshe was turned out correct eventually. And I became a layman again, you know. So I, I don't like people introduce me as the, or the monk, you know, because then I have to say I'm an ex-monk, you know. Yeah. I am. And his illness was a little upset, not as much as Ling Rinpoche, who had given me the the, uh, the novice uh, vow, you know. But anyway, so anyway, when I was a monk, that's what I would do. And then I was, then the other thing the old geishi did before my, my Mr. Miyagi, when he left me in Dharamsala in the winter of 64, he said, uh, he had set me up in a good way and blah, blah. And then he left. And then he arrived with Yishi Dunden, who was His Holiness's physician yeah. at that time. Yeah. And he said, you study Tibetan medicine with this man here. 
you become his apprentice and you learn all about Tibetan medicine. And I said, what? I don't want to learn Tibetan medicine. I'm learning about emptiness. I want to meditate. I want to be enlightened. Yeah, yeah, later you can get into that. Now you study more on empty about medicine. You have to learn that. And so I did because you don't say no to a Mongolian. <laughs> and and I'm so happy I did. It was really an amazing kind of experience. And the mm-hmm. Tibetan medicine is an extraordinary system. It's like Ayurveda. In fact, I think it's one of the contributors to Indian Ayurveda without them now remembering because they lost their Buddhist side, you know, in India, the second millennium. But it's really amazing system. It fits with the Dharma, you know, Four Noble Truths and the way of being diagnosed as a sick person by a doctor. These are interconnected totally beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing. You know, as you, I'm sure you know about it. So anyway, I would study all day and I would uh, meditate as whenever I could. And I was happy to be away from my Mr. Miyagi, my because he would always interrupt my meditating. He didn't want me to meditate. He said, you can't meditate. I said, why not? He said, well, you're not ready. You have to learn more. And he went on and on about it. And even when I came back to his monastery, after having been ordained and you know been around a little bit as a monk, and he still prevented my meditating. And he once said, Oh, don't, 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 why are you staying up all night? Just get a rest and whatever you do. You can't meditate. I said, why not? He said, no. And then he says, well, why are you meditating? I said, what do you mean? I want to be enlightened. Then he said, well, you can't be enlightened. I said, why not? He said, because you're an American. He said, really? And then I said, what do you mean? I believe, I know what he was getting at. And I said, I really do think of the future life. I know there's a future life. I'm not like just believing that this is the only life. And I knew that's what he was getting at. And he said, yeah. He said, well, yeah, I know sort of you do. But in a way, the problem with you Americans is what gets enlightened is your mind. And at a deep level, you don't think you have one, he said. That was his precept. And I argued like mad for months after that with him. And then finally, I kind of realized that deep down, you know, we don't really live. As if we're, as if, you know, we do think about our retirement. I'm now retired. We do think about next week, next year, you know, the event, we plan, we have a calendar, make a schedule, et cetera. So we kind of live in the context that we're going to be around in this form for some time. But we don't think that beyond the death like that, you know. It's not a real thing to us in a way because the consensual culture is like that. It's like immediate Whatever it is, you know, this is all there is, you know, and the wall is the really the real thing, the room here, the house, this body and this identity is it. And uh, that's what he meant. And you have to go so deep to do that. And uh, he didn't want me, you know, especially when I first encountered the study, I would go slip into these altered states. You know, uh, I knew something about other kinds of altered states before that even. But anyway, I would go into another kind of altered state, like I would really kind of go out of body. And I think he felt I would get addicted or I would get stuck in those altered states if I meditated mm-hmm. or I understood more about non-duality. So the wish to escape from the nervousness and escape from the mental discomforts and escape from the worries and the anxieties and things. And uh, so the dualistic way, you know, is easier and quick, quicker, you know, and that's why Buddha taught the Theravada and this kind of things that teach that Nirvana is outside this world. But and not he didn't teach the non-duality right away. He said later that will be people will be ready for that. They'll be mature for that. 
but he, he didn't share it widely in his life on purpose. And I understand that, and I, I, I get that. And I think that's what he was doing. He was preventing me from escaping and getting sort of feeling like I'm, I'm safe because I have a place to escape to. Suffer things a little harder that we're going to change everything with us. You know, we're going to bring everybody along, you know, right? Yeah. It's, too yeah. much. it's too much when we don't have enough self-confidence, you know, I think, at first, you know. Maybe uh, you could explain your understanding of emptiness. My favorite word is Nagarjuna's, uh, it's, and I couldn't find it in any of the present parameters that are indexed electronically. In other words, in doing a search program, I couldn't find this particular phrase that's in Nagarjuna's book called Shunten, you know, it's so beautiful in Tibetan with the ning, 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 dojen, you know, <laughs> which I translate as emptiness, the womb of compassion. It's his description of the highest kind of non-dual, somewhat intimidating to people who are not used to it, teaching about emptiness. Very importantly, you know, the, the great universal compassion comes from realizing one's own transparency, let's say, one's own open, complete openness, which is what emptiness, emptiness can really be, could be translated as freedom, radical freedom. But it doesn't mean freedom to then harm people and do stupid things. Because when you reach radical freedom, real, true, complete freedom, then you, and you're still around, you are completely generous and friendly and compassionate and because you have nothing better to do. And you, you are aware in a field of openness, you're aware that others really like it when you're nice. And then they're nice and that makes everybody happy. And it's really, it's really stupid to be mean in any way even in your mind, even if you're being polite, but you have some mean thoughts in mind, that ruins the whole day. So emptiness is really getting free from being compelled by any causal process that uh, would, would overwhelm your, your judgment about what's best in a particular situation. And that's why it's the womb of compassion, you know, because uh, of course, it's a little tricky, though, because people wrongly think emptiness is like empty space. Because actually, in many teachings, they use the word space as a kind of way of thinking about this inconceivable thing, which emptiness is. But emptiness is not, is not more space than it is any solid object. The so-called solid object, like this table or this computer or this screen or this program or you and me, are just as much emptiness as some space in between us. And that's really important. Remember in the Heart Sutra, matter is emptiness. Emptiness is matter. They say form and people get a vague idea. They don't know what it means when you say form. But if you say matter, which is what you should, but that, that's how that should be translated. Emptiness is matter. Matter is emptiness, you know, because the Buddhists discovered that quantum thing long before the Western people did. And Buddha discovered, certainly. So emptiness is this radical freedom which doesn't destroy a single thing. It's not like everything dissolves into nothingness or something. It's not nothing. That's the key. It's beyond nothing. Nothing, luckily, isn't there because it's nothing. <laughs> but emptiness is there and is everything. That's the beautiful thing. So then that's why it becomes the root of compassion, because once you realize that the absolute you're seeking of nirvana is all of these things and all of these people, they are all there, too. Because that's the nature of it all. It's made of nirvana, almost, you could say. The world is made of nirvana. And once you realize that, then you realize there's no place to escape to. 
And when you realize that, you realize, well, then I'm going to make the very best of this. Mm-hmm. And then you become determined to do that. And when you want to make the very best of this, then you have someone in front of you who's unhappy and making the best of it is that they be happy. Mm-hmm. So then that becomes like somebody, you know, that's abs- that becomes absolute. That unhappy person becomes God, you know, like these religious people go, God, you know. And then they say they're not going to investigate, like they're not going to investigate this and that because they're people of God, you know, they're crazy, you know. But the point is the suffering is God. And that's, and you know, like Jesus also said, you know, you do something for somebody, that's it, and you're in heaven. And uh, Bodhisattva idea is just the same. You know, I was so happy when you asked people to renew their bodhicitta, and mm-hmm. then you said, bodhicitta, our bodhicitta is being here together. I thought that was so sweet. Mm-hmm. And that's so absolutely right. You know, I, I'm, I'm late, nowadays I'm obsessed with the Flower Ornament Sutra, Tom Cleary's translation of the Do Pelboche, you know, the wonderful Buddha Tamsaka Sutra. And there it says that if somebody decides to become a Buddha, because to, if you're a Buddha, you can really help other people. And because you really know what their problem is, you know, you're like the ultimate physician and spiritual teacher or, or whatever it may be, you know, whatever they need, you can, you, you can be that. And if you get the idea there's such a thing to be, then you say, okay, I'm going to be that. I don't care how many lifetimes it takes me, how long it is. Then you, then the sutta says the minute you have that initial determination, by imagining there is a way to be that is the optimal way to be with everybody, then from the time you will get there, even though it might seem like a million lifetimes, it's like a minute. You're like already there because it's, it's that, that time is a, the fact that the length of the time is kind of an illu- illusory. It, they hammer that idea in very, very much. It's really a delight. Because sooner or later we'll all get there, you know. So emptiness, people shouldn't be afraid of emptiness. They should be happy. Emptiness saves them from nothingness. <laughs> nothingness is what what we're taking the world toward because of the dominance, dominance of materialism as an ideology in our world. It doesn't mean that we're Marxists to be materialists. You can be a capitalist and be very materialist. What materialism means in the spiritual and philosophical level is that this material body is you. And all our sciences are based on that. You're, you are just a brain, and you're not anything other than that. You have no soul, you have no spirit, you have no mind. And uh, that's what he meant, you know, the mind. That's such a de- terrible, depressing view, uh, because, and it's completely insane, actually, because that's what? Nothing is nothing, and emptiness is not nothing. Emptiness just means relativity of everything. Everything is totally interrelated, and all those interrelated things are empty of any non-related component. There's no little thing hiding inside Lama Tsutum or inside Bob that is the Bob thing that is a thing in itself and doesn't connect to anything else, and it's unique, and it's this and blah, blah, blah. No, everything is totally interwoven with everything else. That's what emptiness means. So therefore, the only logical way to be with other things that seem to be other things is to be loving and compassionate toward them. Therefore, emptiness, the womb of compassion. What do you think? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, beautiful explanation of emptiness. I was struck by the use of uh, the word matter 
for form and then yes. thought about how the word matter actually comes from the Latin mater, which yes. is his mother. And, and this uh, split between matter and spirit has been the cause of really our ecological downfall yes. and uh, so much destruction in the world of turning away from matter and not honoring it. The split, the split, you know, that even Buddhism, like let's, you know, that sort of let's get out of here, let's go to nirvana. Well, it's so important that we need to stay here and treat it as sacred. Matter is mother. This this is our our world. Yes. The rupa, the word rupa has yeah. two meanings in Sanskrit as and, and sukh in Tibetan which is, it, it can mean a visual object, which is where they get the form from. And I think the ancient, the English translators of the Pali texts, like Rhys David and of the early translators of the 19th century, they wanted to impose that platonic idea of the forms, you know, when they found rupa. But rupa skanda means the material uh, body. And, uh, and the, when it says in the, in the Heart Sutra, when it says matter is emptiness, emptiness is matter, matter is not other than emptiness, emptiness is not other than matter, then they really want to make collide our notion of a solid thing with, with our notion of openness and re realize that it is actually solid. Things are open because they're solid. In other words, we can bump into them because they're relative and we relate to them by bumping into them. And uh, or we could see through them with an X-ray machine, or if we had X-ray vision, which you could get, which then we find that it's wonderful that the people who investigated matter, now the materialist scientists, discovered that they can't pin it down. It dissolves under analysis. You know, it, it goes through the quantum level, and then it's uncertainty. And so mind is, that's a rediscovery of mind, actually, that you can't get away from mind, but they then turn away from that. And they think they'll find some ultimate particle later. They keep blowing stuff up to try to find more ultimate particles. But that's, yeah. they won't put a saw through that a long time ago. The real scientist Buddha was. Um, one other thing, try to be, try to adopt the infinite lifestyle. Live for eternity. Mm -hmm. Each moment count for eternity. And you'll be much happier and you'll be able to be much helpful to everyone. There's another great thing in the Theravada literature, they say, that whatever you do and whatever meditation you realize and recognize will be good in the hereafter. It'll be good in the ultimate. You know, you'll reach nirvana, but it'll also be good in your immediately worldly situation. It'll improve your immediate life. Thank so. you, Bob. Thank you, everyone. And uh, this time with you, Bob, and these gems of wisdom that you dropped into our mind streams are beautiful and i see that you have a course going on this flower ornament sutra and some people are doing that that's wonderful good i hope that you and i see each other in in uh, in this body again yeah. soon it was so precious to be together in costa rica all the best Thank you, everyone, for being with us for this Wisdom Rising podcast. May it benefit all beings. And I'd like to take a moment to thank the production team of Wisdom Rising and also to let you know that if you would like further information on my work or the associated people who work with Tara Mandala, 
you can reach out to the Tara Mandala website, T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A dot O-R-G. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.